0: So I'm going to reread the passage real quick, even though Abe did a great job, very exuberant reading. Uh, I'm going to read again from Mark chapter 2. We are in verse 18 to 22. It says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. See, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm an old man now, and so I don't always know about the hip, trendy things that's happening. I have to like learn from some of you younger you know, millennials. And so I've been hearing a lot recently about like, this seltzer water stuff. Uh, like Truly, White Claw, Black Claw, like all these different types of drinks. And I was hearing about it, and I was ignoring it for a long time, but you guys kept like hyping it up, you know? And so finally, I actually went to Father Abraham's house, and I saw that he too, the pastor of our church, had this White Claw in his fridge. So I was like, I guess I have to finally try it and see what it's about. So I was hanging out with some of you church people, and you guys offered me, uh, I think it was Truly, and so I took it and I drank it to see what the hype was about. And after about two, three sips, I was like, well, I don't think I'm feeling this. And they were like, you know, maybe try a different flavor. Are you sure you don't want another one? I was like, not today, Satan. Um, because <laughs> for me, well, you like that one, that was a good one, right? For me, I was like, this is just like fancy Lacroix. You know what I'm saying? And that's what it is. And I'm a, I don't care what y'all tell me. It tastes like someone ate a fruit salad and like burped in a can. That's what it tastes like to me. And, and so, I was trying to understand why do people like this stuff so much? And I realized, because it's, it's new. It's, it's, it's a new thing, right? It's a new fad, it's a new hype, you know, it's going to die down eventually. But it's something about newness that we like. In fact, I actually read an article this week that scientists have studied the chemistry of our brain, and they found that there's, there's a specific part of our brain that releases dopamine when we see novel images. Like in other words, we get excited by new things. And so what I kind of realized in a way is that a central theme of the passage for today is a little bit like this idea. Now, the people of Israel, who Mark was writing about in this time, the expectation was that they should be filled with excitement And anticipation because there is something brand new never before seen that God is doing through this Jesus from Nazareth figure I mean we see the word new a lot in the passage and this is a theme uh, throughout mark in this gospel he makes it clear that if you are gonna follow Jesus you're gonna say and do things that you never have before And you also see things that you never have before. And so if I could, um, if I keep it 100, as they say, I think some of us, we, we don't quite get this. Like some of us, we would call ourselves Christian, but I think we treat our faith like downloading a new app on our phone. Like we go to it, not all the time, but only when we need it, right? And we have all these different, um, what what I call, all all these different versions of ourselves, right? Like like there's school David and and work David and home David. There's friend David and family David. There's black David and Wheaton David. You know what I'm saying? Like there's different versions of David. There's church David now, right? I'm a Christian. There's pastor David. There's spiritual David. We have all these different versions of ourselves and we treat our faith like a, another version. It doesn't completely change who we are, but Mark is trying to make it clear that if you want to be a disciple of Christ, that you become radically different than before. That your ideology, your belief system, the entire foundation of your identity is changed. Like in Christ, you literally become a new creation that's what mark is arguing so it's, it's not like downloading a new app it's like getting a new phone right and jesus and i are arguing today that unlike a trolley and whatever like this new life is so much better it's, it's actually worth the hype it's like if you had an android you go to an iphone you know what i'm saying right it's like going from chick-fil-a to popeye it's like it's better it's new but it's actually worth the hype amen by myself right So the central theme of this passage in my sermon is this. This eminent presence of Jesus is a monumental, radical event that will forever change any culture that it experiences. Or better yet, forever change anyone who experiences it. And there is something new that is happening with this Jesus of Nazareth in this story that is forcing this small Jewish community to reassess what they assumed was true and good. Something is happening here. And so Jesus in Mark is making this point uh, by analyzing a specific Jewish custom, one called fasting. And we see this uh, begin in the passage in verse 18 with a question. Uh, People come and they say to him, John's disciples fast the disciples of the Pharisees fast but your disciples do not fast and the implicit question is why don't your disciples fast and so Jesus is forced to kind of address this question about fasting and I think he does so to make a point about the new reality that his presence brings bear with me is what I mean Uh, first put simply uh, fasting was a was a time where you typically would refrain from the pleasure of food or drink, right? And I think it's, it's something that's not particularly uh, familiar to us in our culture. I, I do think fasting in a way has almost become a little bit more prevalent in our culture. Remember, I was actually talking to somebody recently and I was telling them how I skipped uh, breakfast. And like, oh, is it because you're intermittent fasting? And I was like, what'd you call me? And they said, they said no, 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 they said, when you skip a meal, it means, right, that you're like intermittent fasting. Like, that's what it's called. I, was like, well, I, th- I thought it was called being poor. Like, I wasn't trying to skip breakfast. I had no money to, you know what I'm saying? I like, got a fancy word for my poverty. But like, <laughs> right, like, but to me, like this, this, this idea intermittent fasting and all these different kinds of fasting for like fitness reasons, or so to reach this heightened, like spiritual, like there's all these like articles about fasting. So it's kind of weirdly really getting kind of hyped in our culture. But I think still that, that the approach that the ancient Israelites had to fasting is still pretty foreign to us. And so my goal, my my hope is that, um, that today we'll talk a little bit, just three quick reasons for why they fasted at this time and then how the presence of Jesus provides a new way to understand this spiritual discipline. Fair? Just three quick ones, hopefully. Y'all ready? All right, let's go. Uh, so the first common reason that people fasted in ancient Israel was to express sorrow. To express sorrow. I meant to have slides up here, but I got sick from all the truly, so I didn't send it to Tim in time. But the first, the first reason, only three points. The first one is to express sorrow. Fasting was often associated with the death of a loved one or illness or mourning. And so fasting was... was, was uh, um, or the concept behind it was that th- they wanted to have an embodiment, right, of an inner feeling that they were experiencing. And once again, this is a kind of a foreign concept to us. I think I, I remember when I first started preaching, all the leaders in the church they would tell me, "David, trust the process." And they say, during the week before you preach, make sure you pray, spend time with the Lord you study, and you read, and then when you go up there to preach, trust that process. Trust your prep. And they kept saying to me, I'm like, why y'all keep saying this to me? They're like, because there's gonna be many times where you go up there to preach, and you're gonna feel like you're bombing. And I was like, I don't know, y'all kind of overhyping a little bit, and then I started preaching. And I'm like, every week I feel like I'm bombing. And what they didn't tell me was that the reason why that you, you feel that way uh, is because Oftentimes when you preach, the crowd just bank- blankly stares at you. Like some of y'all just like, just be staring at me. Like you don't blink, you don't breathe, you don't laugh, like you just stare. You know, I get like nervous, I'm like, is it that bad? Like are you sleeping with your eyes open? You know what I'm saying? Like, like people just be staring at you. And what I realize is that it's a culture thing. Because I grew up in a Pentecostal Nigerian church. And every other word they would be talking back to you, you know what I'm saying? It'd be a three-hour sermon because everyone's preaching a different sermon in their seat. Like it's just like, that's the way it would go. But here, homies, they they will be moved, their lives will be changed, and they're like this, and you're like, I guess it's okay, you know? And so there's something about our, I think our culture, we don't always embody what we feel, but a lot of, it, especially Eastern cultures, they would always use their bodies to express what's inside. And so that's, that's the concept behind fasting, right? And I, I mean, to be honest, I think we can learn a lot from these cultures, specifically when it comes to worship. But I think for today, the point is simply that um, that majority of the people at the time, fasting was the embodiment of anguish and, and suffering. The feeling of sorrow was probably the most common reason that people fasted at the time. And so Jesus knows this. Like He's aware of the Jewish culture. Right? right? So he knows that the imagery of fasting is most often associated with people who are mourning their situation or sorrowful about the loss of something or the loss of someone. This is exactly why he starts with the metaphor of a wedding because it's actually the complete opposite. So once again, in verse 19, what do we see? He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And so it's, it's an interesting thing for him to say for a couple reasons. The first uh, reason, as, as many of you know, the Old Testament had a lot of uh, prophecies about this coming Messiah who would rescue this nation from enslavement and bondage, and there were a lot of different things that were written about this Messiah. A lot of different images and whatever. You know, one image that wasn't used was actually one of a bridegroom. Do you know the only person or being that was described as a bridegroom in the Old Testament? And guess this: was God. God Himself was the only one, for the most part, that had the image of a bridegroom. And so it's fascinating, and that's what Jesus actually picks. Because it's almost like he's saying two things. In one way, he's creating a bridge between him and God, which is crazy. And in another way, he's saying the Messiah is not going to be what you expect. He's going to go against your customs, against your traditions, against your expectations. And so he's saying both these things using this imagery. And they didn't recognize who Jesus was. They didn't realize that a new thing was in their life. So they thought in their question, it would make sense that his disciples, as another teacher, would fast. It it would make sense that they would experience, right, times of mourning. They would experience times of hopelessness, times of sorrow. It was an expectation that their lives would be marred by hardships. They would go through tough times with Nowhere to turn, right? So the more and more I thought about it, the more and more their question in 18 makes sense to me. I mean, this is a people who were stuck in captivity for hundreds of years, and they had almost no sense of this coming Messiah. I think it's a people who saw generation after generation pass by without much sense of a savior or reprieve from their situation. This is a people group, that may have given up hope for their lives before death. And so I was reflecting on that and even thinking of our own current collective community and even a sense of hopelessness that right now we feel, don't we? I mean, sometimes I go online and it's honestly demoralizing to see the rate of anxiety or depression And I meet a lot of people who I can tell are hurting. A lot of sense of who they are, of who who they should be, what they should do, where they should go. And I see the heartache and I see the sorrow. So I get the question, why aren't the disciples of Jesus fasting? Why don't we fast? Why don't we go through this expression of hopelessness? And the reason is because despite all that we go through, we have good news. But Jesus is saying to these people, you don't quite get it yet. You thought you had lost hope, but hope has finally arrived. He is saying, if you are my disciple, you have been invited to the wedding party where sorrow will be replaced by singing and dancing and rejoicing. He's saying, in my presence, joy is now made full. Now that I am here, you can be given a new purpose, a new identity, a new hope that can never be taken away from you. And so in verse 20, he talks quickly about his death. He says, the days will come where the bridegroom is taken away, and they will fast. The bridegroom will be taken away from them. But he's making it clear that their sadness won't last forever. Because right now, even right now, if you decide that you want to follow Jesus, God makes a new promise to you that he will never leave you and that he will never forsake you ever again. This is the new promise that God gives all his disciples. And so as long as we are at the wedding, as long as we are in the presence of the bride and the groom, how can we be filled with sorrow? How can hopelessness have the final word in our life? And so the presence of Jesus changes this approach to fasting. And so what's another reason that they often fasted? Number two, it was to express piety. So they often fasted at this time to express piety. In other words, they fasted to show off how holy they were, to show off how righteous they were. You see, at the time, it paid off to be a very religious person. Right? The religious leaders at this time were adorned with adoration and privilege. They were respected more than maybe any other public figure in their community. It's hard for us to know, I, I, I remember a time when I was in, uh, to the Philippines this year, and it was the first time, or one of the first times I felt the weight of being called a pastor, or being a pastor. Because I would go and everyone would call me Pastor David, Pastor David, Pastor David. And they want to take care of me, they'd be asking like, what can we do for you? Are you comfortable? Are you okay? And I was so humbled by it. I was, you know, I was like, you know what, I, I just want to serve you guys, I just want to learn, you know, a quick back rub here and there, and that's it, that's it, I'm easy, you know what I'm saying? But like, but like they, they were so accommodating, they're so honoring in their culture. So I remember the, the day when it was came back for us to leave. You know, we've been there for two weeks. We saw amazing things. We did amazing things. People were crying, and I was literally crying the most, not anybody else, because I'm like, oh, I have to go back to America. Where, <laughs> you know, what I'm saying, well, they don't even say amen when I, pre- you know, like they just all they did was buy me a Nintendo Switch. Anyway, so to me, right, I, I, I kind of got a taste of what these religious leaders were experiencing. And they got drunk off of that, off of being adorned, off of being respected, being honored. And so part of the reason we know that they had this motivation is because in the Old Testament, you're actually only required to fast once, one day a year. Anyone know what day it is? Any nerds in here? Uh, It's the Day of Atonement, right, where you were fast in repentance, and over sorrow for your sin. That's the only day you're actually required. But these religious leaders began adding to the law. And so they would fast two, three days a week, every week. Before long, it became uh, this tradition that many use, I think, again, simply to show how much better they were than anybody else. And to be fair, I don't think this was the case for all the leaders. I think some of them actually did it not just to be pious for others, but to be pious for God. Because they were actually convinced still that God would reward them for their spiritual actions. Like like they were convinced that God would bless them for their self-imposed righteousness. And so either way, fasting was in a sense about them. It made them the savior. It made them the center of attention. And so we could begin to understand why Jesus gives another an analogy in verse 21. What does he say? No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch will tear away the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And so when I first like, read this, I was like, what does this have to do with fasting, right? Or like, it kind of it seems random, or piety. But then the more I thought about what he's saying I realized, okay, this is what he's describing. He's describing an old garment or piece of clothing with a tear or with a hole in it. And he's saying, like, imagine that you took a new garment and you stitched it or you patched the hole with it. You see, and the issue with that is that when you go to wash that garment when it gets dirty, the new patch will shrink. And the old one, because it's raggedy and old, will not. And so when you're done, it actually will begin to create a greater tear, a greater hole than was first there. And so I was thinking about this and I thought about our own lives and I'm like, you know what, Like, we're still like the religious leaders, aren't we? Like on Sundays or throughout the week, we still do like spiritual religious acts to impress people or because we're still convinced that that's how we earn our own righteousness. And I was reflecting on our lives, and I was thinking about, man, we, we know we're not perfect. And in a sense, we kind of get we can't save ourselves. And we've heard it from this pulpit so many times before. And no matter how many times, I think in our hearts— we are still not convinced that it's not up to our works. And I think in our hearts, we try to keep washing and cleaning ourselves. And we know we have holes, we know we're an old garment, and we, we say the right things about Jesus and, and Christ, and we, but we treat them like a new patch. We stitch them to parts of our life, not, not the whole thing. And we're still the ones washing. And when we are done, what happens? It's worse. The tear, the hole, is worse than when we first began. But I am convinced that ultimately we still believe that God does not want us, that God does not see us, that God does not hear us, that God does not accept us, that God will not answer us. God does not sing over us. He doesn't smile over us. He doesn't love us unless we prove that we are worthy to be loved. I think we're convinced of that still. No matter how many times we've heard it, we strive to look holy. We strive not to show weakness. We strive to never really be vulnerable. We strive to earn the love of others. But once again, here's the good news. I believe that at least part of what Jesus is saying here is something new has happened where you no longer have to strive to be holy because he now will be the one who makes you clean. It's not enough to simply stitch up an old garment with a new patch, but instead God wants to give you a brand new garment. You you see what I'm saying? God wants to give you a brand new garment where there are no more tears and, and no more holes. And better yet, It never has to be washed again. That's what God wants to do. If anyone is in Christ once again, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And so I can look at you because of Christ and say with confidence, God does love you, and God does see you, and God does dance over you and sing over you and smile at you and hear you and accept you. Not because of what you've done. Because of what Christ has done for you. And so you don't have to strive. Because he's already called you beloved. And that will forever be your name. And so we no longer have to fast to express holiness or piety. Because this is the gift that the presence of Jesus gives to us that we are loved by God our Father. The last reason that people fasted is because they wanted to express what I call desperation. They wanted to fast because of desperation. Just to recap, I think because of Christ, uh, we don't have to fast because of hopelessness or sorrow. Because of Christ, we don't have to fast because of piety and self-righteousness. However, because of Christ, I think we get to fast to express how much we long for him. This is what I mean. Um, I was looking up the definition of of fasting in the Hebrew, and one definition I saw that I liked, it said simply to be empty. That's what it said, to be empty. And that stuck with me, that idea just to be empty. I think for me, I don't know about you guys, but there's just times... I just feel empty. Like I feel like I'm just running on empty. Times I don't know what I'm supposed to do, know where I'm supposed to be, know what God wants for my life. Times where I've strived to figure all that stuff out. And this left me empty. And so I, I, I began to think about this last parable he gives in verse 22 about wineskins that have been stretched to their limits. I begin to understand again what that feels like, uh, to have so many unanswered questions or so many personal burdens that it feels like I'm too tired to go on. That if anything else in my life happens that I have to carry, like I will burst at the seams. Like I'm too tired, I can't go on. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I find myself desperate for someone who will ease my yoke, who will ease my burden, who will give me rest. And so I thank God. Because I think that Jesus is partly saying here that there will be new wineskin to carry new burdens. Your wineskin has been stretched. It's about to burst. But he will provide something new to help you carry your burdens. You see, forgive me for spoiling the story, but after Jesus dies and is resurrected, his disciples do not stop fasting. Not completely, at least. We see in the book of Acts, for example, they fast a lot. But it's almost always accompanied with what? Prayer. Asking. Because I think they understood that in our desperation, when we go to God on our knees, we go to Him in the wee hours of the morning, and we go to His door and we knock, 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 and we ask, and we ask, and we ask, because we're at the end of ourselves. And we have nowhere else to turn, nothing else to look towards, no other hope. We are on empty. And we beg our Father to help us. And we seek him and we ask of him that he would open the door to us. Because he knows that we cannot save ourselves. That he is here to save us. And he wills and he longs to help the people he has loved. I think the disciples of Jesus understood that fasting is a way to remind us that we are hungry, but not for bread alone, because man cannot live on bread alone, but for the presence of the Lord in our lives. So I want to end with this thought. Up until this point, I think this sermon series has been about how Jesus, how his presence changes um, everything it interacts with from, from uh, baptism, right, to identity, uh, to healings, to fasting, to our lives. And if I were honest, I think there are some of us here, we appreciate that more because we can remember what our lives used to be like before we were a disciple of Christ. Like, like we remember what it was like before God rescued us before he saved us, before he changed us. We remember what it was like to have a moment where we felt like we were in his presence. If I was going to keep it real, I think there's a lot more of us, perhaps, who have forgotten what that's like. And to be honest, if you're like me, I said this before, perhaps you're actually riding on the coattails of someone else's experience or or, or old experiences with God. Like, if we're going to be real, maybe you're riding on a youth group event or the high of a college retreat. And that's the last thing you remember of being in the presence of God. And I want to ask is it possible that God is saying He wants you to have a new encounter with Him? Is it possible that even this week He's saying, I want to speak something into your life? That even today He's saying, I want you to sit with me. That even right now as I'm speaking, the Lord is welcoming you into his presence. Is that possible? I pray for this church, I really do, that we would be a church where at least a few of us are so desperate, so desperate for the presence of God that we would not be satisfied with the old. but We will long for a new encounter, experience in his presence. So I wanna pray. If you're comfortable, again, you could bow your head to pray with me.